we have really big problems that we need to solve for. We should not be losing 40% of our yields to diseases. And at the same time, by the way, we overapply anywhere from 30 to 50% of fertilizers and pesticides. We shouldn't be doing any of these things because we now know that there's an impact on the environment from every single one of those. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Shelly Aronov, founder and CEO of Interplant. Interplant is a VC-backed ag tech company on a mission to transform farming by enabling crops to communicate with growers. Their living sensor plants emit optical signals detectable by tractors in the field or by satellites in space. And if that sounds like futuristic science fiction, yeah, it does, but it's, it's becoming real, thanks to Shelley. Shelley is a serial entrepreneur with experience in multiple sectors across multiple countries with an MBA from a little-known school named Stanford. Ha ha ha. In this episode, we talked about United Nations estimates that we lose 40% of crops to diseases and pests each year, in parentheses, how their solution can dramatically uh, change the food output without more acreage. We covered how she's building a tech that sounds like a mood ring for plants. Come on, plants, tell me how you feel. What, what's stressing you out right now? Drought, disease, etc. We cover the benefits of cross-domain expertise, why they settled on fungal infections and in soybeans as their first but not last problem to solve, how they use a paid waiting list of farmers who are helping to co-create the best product market fit, the number one reason the startups failed, and lessons from wizards and profits. you got to listen to find out what that means. Anyway, lots more here. Hope you enjoy it. Please give Shelly and Interplant a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. But first, there's a brief message from our sponsors. Just kidding. We still don't take any sponsors. <laughs> but did you know that 100,000 plus CEOs belong to CEO peer groups? And if that makes you feel a little FOMO, and if you're a CEO or founder, then you're in luck. I have the privilege of leading North America's top peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors in climate tech, clean energy, and sustainability. Today's members are creating billions of dollars of market value and millions of tons of greenhouse gas reductions. With our monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one -on -one executive coaching calls, our members help each other, most importantly, help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. If this sounds interesting, please go to 
entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. Shelly Aronov, co-founder and CEO of Interplant. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. So we were talking, as as one does on a podcast before press and record, that um, a statistic that most folks should know about that don't, and is a core driver of why your all's technology matters, that the UN estimates we lose 40% of crops to disease and pest each year, dot, dot, dot. We can almost, or maybe maybe literally we could, double the crop output with no new land required, which I don't think we have, to feed a growing a growing population. Is that, did I get that right? Yes. And another shocking fact is that when I started Interplant, which was over four years ago, I had a different report from the UN I was quoting, which was 10 years old. Uh, it was 25% at that time. So it's gotten way worse because of climate change. And just the the change in in pest and disease zoning, right? So that's depressing. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's reality, so we we yeah. might as well know. It is. I mean, I think the other thing. Look, regular listeners to the podcast know the reason that I started this in whatever twenty twenty was not because the world needed another podcast. It was because the world needed positive stories, not a bunch of doom and gloom on how we're all going to die because of climate change. So. Although the stats are worse, you know, big problems are big opportunities for entrepreneurs to solve with businesses that, what do you know, make profit in solving uh, big problems as well. So another fun tagline of Interplant, I believe is maybe somewhere at the head of your all's website, you're allowing plants to communicate. That's a terrible kind of summary, but tell us the proper one-liner on what you do for plants. It is really that plants communicate. We enable them to, or we enable farmers to understand what their crops need. But I can, I can certainly explain how this works. Let's, if that's a, let's let's go a lot deeper. Yeah, let's go a lot deeper. So it's really plants do communicate, but that has nothing to do with what inner plant does. What we tap into is the plant's immune system reactions to their environment. So plants are very active in their environment because they're immobile. When they're attacked, they need to do something to protect themselves. If a plant is being eaten by bugs, it's going to start producing a compound to make it taste bad and repel those insects. If it doesn't have enough nitrogen, it will mobilize its roots to extract nitrogen from the soil. And all those reactions are early. They start within hours of the stress impacting the plant. And they're specific because the plant has to do th- different things in order to protect itself. But the problem is they all happen on the molecular level. So we cannot see them as humans. It's just gene expression. What we do is we recode the plant. We add a line of code into the plant's DNA, telling it, when you're reacting to the environment naturally, start producing a new protein in your leaves in addition to that. And that protein creates an optical signal through fluorescence. So you can see this by eye. They look completely normal. They're just regular plants. But with optical equipment, you can then pick up on the signals from as far as satellites and as close as the equipment in the field to tell us there is a fungal infestation or there's insects starting in the field or this plant doesn't have enough nitrogen and it's really early on. We need to give it more nitrogen. So two thoughts, Shelly. First of all, this sounds like science fiction, but present day, so I can't wait to hear the next, the next level of description. The other is half kidding. Wouldn't it be nice if humans, you know, turned a different color um, when yeah. they had different... Yep. 
I've had walk that. around reading people's emotions and stresses without having to guess all the time. <laughs> one of our titles was mood ring for. I think one of the articles about us was a mood ring for plants. And I've had people ask me, "Can you do this for animals and humans?" And I said, "Wow, technically yes, but I doubt it." Let's let's stay with the plants for now. That was a clever journalist, much more clever than me. That was great. Um, all right, so. How are you getting uh, the gene sequence into plants? Like, what's that look like from idea to thousands of acres? Oh, yeah. So the idea, when I started InnoPlant, I came across this concept of a biosensor. Now, apparently biosensors have been around for a very long time, about 40 years or so. Molecular biologists have been making plants in the lab that can express you know, this, essentially what they're stressed to study them. But... What we understood is that we have to create a solution that farmers will actually implement. And by going out and talking to farmers, the first thing I learned was, because I was an outsider to ag, is, wow, farmers completely get it. If you go to a farmer and you ask them, hey, would you want to know what your plants are experiencing? Their answer is, yes, definitely. And thankfully, something's happening already to help us do that. And then two is, what do they actually want? And the answer is, Scalable, affordable, no changes to the operations, no additional work. So we're thinking about soybeans and corn. These are crops that cover hundreds of millions of acres. And each individual farm can easily be tens of thousands of acres. Scalability, affordability is key. As we designed our solution, we started with something completely different, but it was very quick to say, okay, we need something that's scalable. It's got to be optical. If it's optical, it's got to be seen from space what can we do to make the signal visible from space? And then we found a different technology from a different domain that enabled to do that. So as we were building the pieces, everything was designed to get to that scale from day one. And at this point in the journey, we have our first product, which is our soybean fungal sensor. And we're first uh, rolling out next year in, in the Midwest, 2024. All right. So as you know, with your own podcast, the art of taking notes as well as following the thread, ask the next question. You know, sometimes... Uh, I don't know how to do that. I, I don't do that. <laughs> I think you just said your first product was kind of a, uh, based on soybean stressed out due, due to a fungal infection. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So why did you start there? And how do you get the first farmer with lots of land to say, yes, I'll try that? Well, the first farmer is, Actually, let me walk you through our journey on that. In 2021, that would have been two years into the interplant journey with funding. There was a little bit before that, but we decided we want to sh show ourselves and the world that farmers want this because there's a lot of this narrative out there about farmers being slow to adopt and not like technologies. Yet from the beginning, we went after genetically engineered seeds because the adoption curve of those is faster than any technology. That you can find. I can show you some charts. There was for the first genetically engineered seeds, 80% adoption in six years. We couldn't find anything faster. So we went to farmers and we told them this, right? We can create plants that can tell you what they're feeling. Would you be interested? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. So we decided to make this into a community and we have now farmers covering over 600,000 acres that have paid in order to have early access to the system and have been with us from 2021 onwards. So we keep growing the community. But that was kind of the beginning is let's make sure that they actually care about this and are interested. And what's been beautiful in that process is they've been 
very active in helping us design our product, define it, work with our partners to understand what they want, what they don't want, work with us to model the value for them on the farm gate. Like all of these things were done with their support. So by the time they actually get the seeds, they're very familiar with Interplant. Mm. So if I hear you properly, they're paying to be part of this community to kind of get, you know, early access, let's say, and to co-create it. And of course, you're getting some revenue along the way, but you're really, I mean, you're kind of getting paid for customer discovery a little bit, yeah. Uh, yeah. but of course they're getting a benefit, right? Early, early access. Is that a model that you've used before prior to Interplant or maybe where did that come from? No, it came from a belief that uh, if something is worth having, it is worth paying for. So this is a mantra in my company and... We haven't done it before. And I remember the first days when I pitched this to the team, they weren't super sure. Like, okay, so you want us to go and ask these people for money so that we can give them something in four years. This was 2021. It would have been four years out until they got the product. And so that they can help us and spend time with us to figure out how to build this product. And the answer is, yes, let's see what happens. And we got the first 50 farmers in three months. And everyone was shocked. Wow. It was funny because after that, we tried to debrief and figure out what happened. And no one had the answer of why did they join? What was the value proposition? Now that we've been at it for a couple of years, I can tell you they want to be part of the solution, right? It takes a long time to, to build something for farmers. It takes a really long time to make biotech products. Farmers don't have that much choice on the products that they buy because everything is so um, consolidated. They want to be part of the solution and they want their voice to be heard. So we actually have another tagline on our website, which is giving plants a voice and farmers a choice. I like how that rhymes. <laughs> yeah, too many taglines here. Now, I will say the same mindset goes into our partnerships. So in our plants, go-to-market strategy is actually reliant on distributing through partners and channel partners. And the reason is, goes back to the feedback from farmers. They want something that's seamless and easy to implement. And if we sell directly to them and it's not integrated into the full solution of the field, that's a hurdle for them. And that's going to make their life harder. And it's going to be fine for the 5% of early adopters, but it's not going to work for the rest. So we are working with different partners. The mantra that goes into every one of our partnerships, and we now have several big ones that have been announced, John Deere, Syngenta, a couple of seed companies, satellite companies, the mantra is always that there has to be interest from that company and interest is part of it is revenue and monetization. And the other part is really being core to their strategy. Because if you're not really important to that company, that partnership is not going to be very fruitful for either sides, but important for us. I mean, I just can't, uh, I can't keep thinking about how this, this model of being paid to do customer discovery, again, a benefit. I just wonder how many more companies that are listening could make that model work despite, you know, the CEO pitching it to the team and then saying, hmm, I don't think it's going to work, Mr. and Mrs. Co-founder, but it can, right? So I did, I, I did, now that I'm thinking about it, there was something else I did. At the time I met Mark Tar Tarpenting, I think his name is, he's one of the co-founders of Tesla. And he was nice enough to spend some time with me. And he told me that they had a paid wait list for Teslas. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Obviously, Tesla is not in our plant. And the paid wait list was actually investors that decided not to invest, but had plenty of money and wanted a down payment on the cool car. 
But he gave me the details and he told me it wasn't about the car. It was about the experience. They wanted to be part of something that's really revolutionary. They cared about those cars because those cars were going to be better for the world. And they wanted to be part of the community. They would do events for them where they would showcase those cars before they're ready. They, they would just create a community around it. And that's part of the reason that these people waited eight years to get the first car. And I thought, okay, you know, this is a model that's been done before and we can do it. I think every industry just maybe has a different price point. Hmm. Love that. So I think some listeners may may hear, you know, genetically modified uh, crops, GMOs, and think, oh, well, that's, isn't that a problem? I'm sure you've, you've heard this and responded to this. How should one weigh pros, cons of, quote unquote, GMOs in ag? I mean... It's a very interesting concept. Some people are always going to be against genetically engineered crops, just like some people are going to be anti-vaccines. There's things that we're not everyone's going to get on board. I think the reality is we need we need to remember that a technology is a technology, and then its own is not evil. I do think that the way that the industry used the technology was not for the best of everyone involved. It was really for the best of the industry at the time. And that was very much the mindset of the agrochemical industries 30 years ago. But the world has evolved and we have, as we started, right, we have really big problems that we need to solve for. We should not be losing 40% of our yields to diseases. And at the same time, by the way, we overapply anywhere from 30 to 50% of fertilizers and pesticides. We shouldn't be doing any of these things because we now know that there's an impact on the environment from every single one of those. And we didn't know that 100 years ago, but we certainly know that now. So the question is, how do we use technology in a responsible way? And that's where our vision is. We can engineer crops to do something benign, produce a protein that can give us a signal and use that data to be farming better. And that's going to make the entire system less reliant on chemistry and chemicals. It's going to be better for the soil. It's going to be better for the farmers. And that shouldn't be done. I do think that some of the concepts that were used before uh, resistant traits, for example, are not very viable because every time you create something uniformly against nature, nature is really good at evolving and fighting back. So we need to let go of some of the older models. But remember that the technology itself is not evil. Even if you didn't like Monsanto, it's not the same thing. Hmm. Well, and what you're talking about is almost like, and I think, I think you mentioned this, it's like code, right? Which is like, yeah. a, you know, if, if this than that, right? If this stress, then that that protein. So the way you all make money is you're selling you're selling what? I mean, there is the there is the seed, I suppose. There's also the 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 monitoring, the analytics. What's the core revenue stream, I suppose, or streams, maybe? Yeah, there's several streams for sure. But the core one is selling seeds with our technologies baked in, and then getting a license fee for that for the technology. And the reason that we like that model is because the most important purchase that a farmers make is buying seeds in the beginning of the season. So they spend the most time thinking about them. They spend the most money on that investment. And really, if you think about farming, everything they do after that is to protect that harvest from that seed. So that's the most logical place to monetize and the biggest opportunity. Now, from there, we actually provide farmers or we'll provide farmers with the data as part of that fee for the seed. So that data will come from satellite imagery and it gives them the knowledge of, we call it scouting tools, the ability to understand within one or two acres if their fields are infected or have a stress. 
from there, there's a lot of other opportunities, like being able to then go in the field with your tractor that's now equipped with sensors and cameras that can read our signals and act on the individual plant level. That will be an add-on. So not everything is included through that tech fee, but there's going to be enough to to give farmers value from that tech fee and then additional opportunities that can be unlocked with additional partners. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so you have these, it sounds like hundreds of farmers helping you co-create these solutions, getting in line for the first products. What are other bottlenecks that you need to unlock or break through to, to really scale Interplant? Yes, two very clear ones. One, you have to make a trade, which means you're starting with a seed. So I don't know how many people understand how you make a seed that's modified, but you make a seed, literally. And that becomes your product. And it has that line of code that you like. And then you can replicate it and make more and breed it into other seeds and so on. And that's how you build an entire portfolio. But the first limiting factor is you start with seeds. And in order to propagate more, it's exponential. The first couple of years, there's a lot of limitation on supply. That's why our our launch next year is not the full field. It's actually just sentinel plants so that we can use less seeds as a proxy and tell us, is there an infestation? And then we're working with an agri-tailer that's going to be announced soon that will go out and tell their farmers in the area, you know, we have this like really cool technology that's telling us there's fungus in the area and you should do something about it. So that's how we are dealing with one of our uh, hurdles. The second one is regulatory. And I think what's interesting about our regulatory um, that just dawned on me recently actually is When people think about regulatory, they think about pharmaceuticals, for example, where only 10% of the products that go through the cycle will actually come out. That's because pharmaceuticals are discovery. So they're highly, you know, the the results are highly volatile. You don't really know how these things are going to work. That's not at all the case for us. With plant traits, you know in advance that your trait and your protein, whatever it is you're making, is safe for consumption, non-allergenic, that will qualify for regulatory approval, which we do. And then you have to create the data packages and you have to work with the regulators because they want to make sure that when they put a check on it, they know for a fact that all the data exists to support the claims. So we have to go through that process. The process through the entire international regulatory is about five years. And it, you know, again, it's one of those things where you can still work within the US because we have regulatory approval in the US already. But in order to unlock the full potential of Every trade can be worth billions of dollars. You have to go through that international approval. All right. So I think you're you're alluding to a few things here. One, of course, is which markets do you operate in geographically? Yeah. Um, the other, which you talked about earlier, is which crops do you operate in? And then you, you also made a reference to your portfolio, right? Almost like an IP portfolio or a seed portfolio with different traits. I don't know. That's, that, that's a lot of options, right? Uh, to, to prioritize where you play. Aside from the regulatory, which you just talked about, how else are you all deciding kind of which stresses, which diseases pests to solve for, which crops to solve for, et cetera, to kind of re- refine for your many, your many options, which ones you you focus on? This is some, I love this question because I've been ruthless in those decisions from day one. I believe that the number one reason that startups die is lack of focus. And our company... The reason we've been successful in making a trade so quickly, focus. We made one thing and we put all of our energy in making that thing, which was the fungus uh, soybean product. Now, how we got there, I wanted for us to focus on huge crops because with huge crops, you have a big opportunity for impact and revenue. 
there is essentially four of those, but specifically corn and soy are already modified, which means that the market for selling them, distributing them, all of the ecosystem for the revenue generation exists. So th those were the logical crops. Each one of them, there's, I believe, 200 million acres of soybean and about 150 million acres of corn. Exactly. So wow. if you compare it to grapes, uh, which is something that a lot of investors ask me about, the answer is so much bigger, right? Yeah. And then the markets are easy because all of these grow in Latin America and the U.S. And specifically, the U.S. and Brazil make up most of those acres that I just told you about. That makes it much easier to then focus. The stresses, we wanted to start with either pathogens or insects because we wanted something binary. So, of course, core nitrogen is something that we want to work on. and It's such a huge problem for the environment. But the problem is it's a systems change. It's not about can farmers use less. We know that they can. It's about providing them a full solution that there's no risk for them of losing yield any year. With diseases, it's way more straightforward. If you have them, you don't want them. And the faster you can know that, the better it is. And our technology is by far the fastest. So that was an easier start. But I do have another, um, kind of one more thought about that. We only create traits that have economical thresholds for 95% of farmers. So a lot of times I get, for example, why not drought? And the answer is only 5% of soybeans are irrigated. And that is the reason, right? Mm. Most of these crops are rain fed. So for us to tell someone that they have drought and there's nothing they can do about it, yeah. get that the 5% will value it. You're like, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I can't do anything about it. Definitely no bad news. Like we don't want to give farmers bad news so they can go be depressed about it. We want to give them actionable information, but we want to look for things that farmers will actually value. And then one day, I don't know, when the whole system is up and running, we can do multiple detections in each plant. Maybe we get to the more niche products, but for the beginning, we wanted blockbuster traits. Okay, so you you kind of touched on two things I like to ask founders, which is something you strongly believe in that kind of sets culture vision. The other is like, you know, tell us about uh, mistakes or discoveries, lessons learned along the way. So it's it clearly sounds like focus covers both of those questions. But if you had to pick another, either a strong belief, which is kind of shaped the trajectory of interplant. Uh, or a lesson learned along the way where maybe what you all thought was going to happen didn't work out and kind of what you all did about that. Do either of those bring up ideas, Shelly? I mean, the other one we touched on too, which is never take the easy route. Make sure, for example, get paid for every contract you sign. Get paid for any work you do. I think it's super critical to have that mindset so that you know really quickly if someone values what you have to offer. And I think there's no other way to answer that question except for paying, getting paid. I know that this a lot in ag, a lot of products are subsidized to farmers. And I understand the logic. It's like, well, you need this piece of equipment in order to use my product. I'll subsidize it for you if you jump in on this contract. Or we don't know yet what the results are, so we'll um, shift the risk and, and we'll figure out at the end of the season if we should get paid. Completely get the logic, but the problem is you're just postponing by God knows how long, maybe three years, the ability to understand if the customer actually values what you have or they're using it because it's subsidized for them. And what we're trying to avoid as a company is any of that sugarcoating because it takes a long time to make these things. And by the time they're in market, we want to make sure that people will value them throughout our customer chain, right? And whether it's the channel partners or the, the farmers. Mm. 
Okay, so different question. You've mentioned the kind of duration, but both when you started uh, Interplant, at least as kind of when the funding started perhaps to kind of really grow, you also talked about some of the regulatory timelines, sort of overseas, you know, being longer. Maybe talk to us about the the funding to grow a company like this with, you know, some tech risk, some regulatory risk. Yeah. Uh, and maybe kind of what, what that looks like going forward, let's say. Yeah, 100%. From day one, it was clear that it's going to take about five years to make the trade. And I can tell you, it, it will take five years. We started four and a half years ago. So from the beginning, we raised not too much money. So we did our first round was two and a half million. The second was three and a half. The third was 17 and a half, which was our Series A last year. But the idea is in every point of time, stay frugal. It will take time to make this because you're literally growing plants and there's no way of doing that faster. It's not like software. You can't grow the soybean faster. So it was really like, okay, let's be as frugal as possible and get through the milestones. First, you got to get rid of the tech risk. Then we had to get rid of the market risk because a lot of times in the beginning, I would get this from investors. Like, this is a great idea. Like, obviously, someone will want it, but like, what are the chances that you can make it? And then he was like, well, but are they going to pay for it? Right? Because it's not, for someone who's not in ag, it's much harder to understand, well, there's a lot of value in just being able to understand what your plants need. So we had to go through all those hurdles. And now we're finally at what I would call the fun part, which is execution. Right, so our next round is going to be our Series B. That's all about getting to market, launching the trades, supporting on the ground, and then expanding the platform to additional trades, which add just more value to the company. And I wish we would have done it three years ago in a perfect world, but it would have been a distraction from doing the one thing we had to do well. Right, So now it's not going to be a distraction anymore because we have the first product. Yep, yep. Well, probably you learn things about that process with the first trait, which will make getting the next traits developed more quickly, except for the fact that plants have to grow. <laughs> yes. And and a lot of it, like for the next one, this is actually part of what I love about this. Um, obviously, Interplant is not a simple company, but the beauty of this complexity is once you build it, it's so hard to then penetrate that from the outside. Mm. So another example for that is the infrastructure. In order to make the first trade, we have to go through all of the different stages. So we had to make the biotech product. We have to set up the remote sensing ecosystem. We had to bring the partners that then will develop products for this and adapt their products offering to this. We have to then find the farmers that are going to plant it, get all of the support operationally for them to do it. And then last is go through regulatory. For the next trade, though, we don't have to do any of those things in the middle. Right. There's yep. the biotech. And the regulatory, exactly. So it's kind of plug and play. And the nice thing is for a low CapEx investment, you can every time launch another blockbuster trade. And that's what makes it so exciting yeah. from a business perspective. I, I totally get that now that you're saying it, um, how, how easier the next trades are. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more business question and then we're going to go to the the um, Shelly portion of the, of the podcast. So, all right whatever, it's 10 years from now, it's 15 years from now, you know, we know that that VC firms uh, have their 10-year fund structure, et cetera, so there's some limit on on that. But I think I heard you mention 200 plus 150, 350 million acres or something like this for just corn and soy. Is that right? Yeah. So enormous, enormous market. Like, I don't know, if you, if you had your dream, uh, Shelly, how does this tech touch the largest portion of the, let's say those 350 million acres 
in X decades? Yeah, we have all the bottles for that uh, because we're super excited about it, right? As I mentioned, successful traits have really fast adoption. And that's happened many times in the past, not once. What we want to do is get to that point and then ride the wave and get it on as many acres as possible where all we're doing is supporting the ecosystem, supporting the, the data collection and analysis, and then launching additional traits. And to get in as, um, as many acres as possible, to me, when we IPO, that's the beginning of the journey. Because from there, there's so much growth that you can then continue to go through. And honestly, if you think into the future, and I try to avoid that because it's a little bit like, okay, fine. At that point, so many things we can do. But like, imagine you have hundreds of millions of acres that are telling you how diseases are starting and spreading. And then you can correlate that with weather conditions and start to understand, hopefully, a better way to predict how weather is uh, trending or how diseases are spreading in the field. I mean, there's so many opportunities at that point. And yeah, yes. going too far, maybe. I understand. But, but when lots of capital and cheaper capital is more available, you know, it's easier to uh, not be hyper-focused, but to consider other ways of creating value with a larger ecosystem of products. Yeah. And I think that should happen through the balance sheet, though. So my view is we have to be super focused and super frugal until we're generating free cash flow and then we can do what we want on the discovery, right? Control our destiny. Totally. I, I love that big vision for sure. All right. So moving to the Shelly portion. So Shelly, um, you're you're talking to your younger self. What advice do you provide to uh, you know build a, a happier, a happier career, more impactful career, let's say? It's a tough one. I I think if I were just talking to my younger self, I would tell myself, don't worry, it will all come together. One of the things that, or this is for maybe someone young that's listening to this, one of the things that I noticed about myself is whatever job I did, I wanted to do a different job after that. So like I wanted to move industries, I move industries in every single job I had. When I graduated business school, it was 2011. And just trying to thread the needle of like, okay, I'm jumping around all the time. What job am I supposed to do? And the answer is you can be an entrepreneur. That's probably the only job where you can choose your industry and you can move around. And that skill set of building companies is very transferable to different industries. So you don't have to stay in the same domain every time. So I think knowing that when I was young would probably have reduced my anxiety a lot around where is this going? What is the story that my resume is telling I like that. And I'll add to that. I was listening to a podcast where the founder of Native, like the deodorant company, was being interviewed. And early, early on, he was talking to somebody and they said, well, what do you know about deodorant? And the, the founder said, I don't know anything, but in six months, I want to know everything. That's it. I so agree. Yeah. 100%. And you have the advantage of not being stuck with the mindset of the industry. I often quote this as one of my advantages is when I got into ag, I knew nothing about it. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have to become an expert. You definitely do. So I spoke to so many people. I went to visit a ton of farmers. I read everything I could to do research. You got to become an expert. But when you do, you don't have the same misconceptions about, well, this is how it's always been done. So this is how it's going to happen, you know? And then I do wonder about it now going into five years. Maybe now I have some misconceptions. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's an opportunity when someone new joins, right? Especially an outsider to the industry is kind of seeing, hmm, I wonder what they're challenging that I stopped challenging. 
Mm. Yeah, I've heard it said that, um, you know, there's at least two approaches to being a leader. One is to be the expert who sees mostly constraints, right, from all sorts of past experience. The other is to be, to have kind of, you know, beginner's mind, right? Whether you think about that in the Zen context or not, but but the beginner's mind here says, well, what constraints? Until someone tells you, well, this is the constraint. You say, well, are you sure it's a constraint? Maybe it's not. Right. And many times they say it and it's not true. Yeah. In the beginning, they would tell me all the time, no one can make a trait. Why? Like literally, we hired people that made it for their entire life. They made trait successfully, right? Yeah, I love that. All right. How about, um, you know, being a, a founder CEO is really hard, demanding, et cetera. Tell us some habits and routines as detailed as possible that you use to keep you healthy, sane, and focused. Sure, tell me. I, I think the biggest thing that I did that was great for me is we got an elliptical and I use it every day when I'm talking to my team and they know it and they're fine with it. Because mm. I do call straight up all day. And if I don't do this stuff, I'm going to lose my mind. I go on walks. I work out. My team knows it. The one thing I did that was pretty funny is I called um, this guy, VP Adir, that I work closely with. And he was giving me a lot of crap for being on the <laughs> I mean, like jokingly and lovely. Yeah, of course. I was like, maybe I'm not going to do it with them again. Yeah, I uh, I recall I was once uh, rucking, right? So just putting like a bunch of weight in your backpack and like going to the woods. And I was talking yeah. to to one of the CEOs I work with, and they were like, "What's that noise?" I was like, "Oh, you can hear that. It's the, it's the weights in my backpack or whatnot." Anyway, I had to stop rucking. So sometimes it it, it doesn't work to multitask uh, for sure. Let's go to the last one here, uh, Shelley. Uh, tell us some books, books. I don't know, podcasts, tools, etc you think listeners may uh, find value in? Yes. So remember my podcast? I had several people on my podcast that have books. One I highly recommend, uh, Charles Mann wrote a book called The Wizard and the Prophet. And it's amazing. It's essentially about this two diverging thought. One is Norman Borlaug represents the scientist and the wizard, and he's the creator of the Green Revolution. So this mindset of, don't worry, we can always find technology that will solve our problems. The other one was Jason Vaught, that was the, I think, the conservationist uh, movement founder. It's all about use less, reserve. And what's beautiful, and then he does this through like climate, water, food, and energy. So the, the pillars. And it doesn't come to a conclusion at the end. It's really a story of how do we think about it? Neither is right. We just have to find a middle ground and take the best from each. So that's one. Another one I love is. There's this, um, a professor and author called Ron Adner who writes about ecosystem disruption. And I think it's fascinating because when I found these books, I was like, ah, finally someone's writing about what we're doing, which is this very unique concept, I think, that not a lot of people cover. So he's got two books around it. The first one is The Wide Lens, and the second is Winning the Right Game. Both of them are worthwhile. And um, if you're thinking through going into industries that are maybe a little bit more constrained and consolidated, having that vision of a disruption for the whole ecosystem is really valuable. I love both. I love all, I guess, all three of those. The, uh, you know, winning the right game, it's kind of like, you know, broader career advice, like what ladder are you climbing, you know, so to speak? Know which game you're playing. So, you know, what, what winning actually uh, looks like and whether you like the definition of, of winning. Uh, and the wisdom of the prophet, you're right. The, it's not one or the other. Both parts are required to, in this case, you know, feed billions of people. Yeah. 
Shelley, I think we could talk about the uh, the ins and outs, the science, the go to market of Interplant for for a much longer, but we're out of time. What's uh what what's a final uh, message, uh, call to action, et cetera, you'd like to leave uh, listeners with? I I think my call to action with every climate uh, founder is think big and have a realistic business model that will work out because you only get sustainable impact if you have a sustainable business. Hmm. And if you're getting marginalized on your solution, you're not going to have the scale. So think big and have a foolproof business model. That that rings very true. I recall in grad school, as I was the environmental management PhD student going to the business school, I was like, oh, you all define sustainability very different than we do across yeah, I, across campus. The exact opposite happened to me recently. I was speaking at a class. I thought it was going to be a business school class. It was an environment class. I was like, oh, wow, this is so different. <laughs> yeah, it's great to speak different languages for sure. Hey, uh, Shelly, we're rooting for your own success. I can't wait to see Interplant's solutions on millions of acres. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.